You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Folks, welcome to a special Outside the Beltway episode of the Beltway Briefing, co-hosted by leaders of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies state teams, including Jim Davis from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Matt Glavin from the Land of Lincoln, Katie Schwab from the Empire State, Julia Hammond from the Old Dominion, and me, John Reich, from the Land of 10,000 Lakes, where many of those lakes will be hosting pond hockey and ice fishing tournaments for the next five months. For the longtime listeners of this podcast, you're used to hearing from our public strategies federal team of Mark Alderman, Howard Schweitzer, Patrick Martin, and Towner French on all things happening in Washington, D.C. Well, we're taking a break from our usual programming this week to hear on what's happening in the laboratories of democracy, the states. In addition to our federal and state attorneys general practice, we've got a great team of lobbyists featured here today, as I mentioned, from Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, New York, and Minnesota. And for a guy like me, from a state where your plane will usually only land in case of emergency, I am thrilled to be able to help moderate the discussion today. With that, let's get into it. Jim Davis, in Pennsylvania, you just finished up your elections. You've got a new governor, and we think we have a House Democratic majority, but we're not sure yet. Can you walk us through the election results and some of the controversies surrounding House leadership and the effect on your clients and the, the political future of Pennsylvania? Well, John, first, fantastic introduction. The, the guys that host the Beltway Briefing, no disrespect to Howard, but they uh, they should have you write their script because that was fantastic. So kudos to you and you know, excited to be on a, a call with all of you and, and see everybody. So um, yeah, Pennsylvania is interesting. Uh, obviously, leading up to the election, uh, the general election in November, we thought uh, it was going to be exciting and figuring out what the results have been. And it's been nothing but unpredictable and exciting since. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be brief because this could go on forever if I if I really get into the, the weeds on this. But, you know, if, if we look back at some of the, the final numbers from the election, Shapiro beat Mastriano by more than 14 points and Fetterman beat uh, Oz by more than four points. You know, there's two things that I want to bring to the attention of our, our listeners. Obviously, that's a 10-point differential, same party, same ticket. So there was a lot of undervoting there. But more importantly, when you look at how many people voted for Fetterman, but then did not vote for Shapiro, excuse me, the other way around, Shapiro had 280,000 more Democratic votes than Fetterman did. So there was there was a number of people that either switched their, their vote there or just sat it out. And Mastriano was was significantly uh, greater as well. But there was 250,000 people that did not vote for in the Oz-Fetterman race that did vote in the Mastriano race. So certainly an interesting outtake there. The, the outcome of all that is that you know, there's going to be, as of right now, 51 new House members and three more coming, which I'll get into, and then six new Senate members. So you know, 25% of the House and uh, more than 10% of the Senate are all going to be new faces. So that'll be interesting for all of our clients and certainly our team members. The paperwork insurrection that you referred to at the beginning has been an interesting thing that's happened in the last 48 hours. Three of the House members that won on the Democratic side will not be seated come January 3rd when, when they get sworn in. The reasons are one of the House members unfortunately passed away before the election and still won his seat. 
Another one ran for lieutenant governor and also ran for his House seat. So he'll be resigning from his House seat to be sworn in as lieutenant governor. And then another woman uh, from uh, Pittsburgh area ran for Congress and fortunately won that seat. So she'll be resigning. So you have three Democrats of the 102 that uh, make up that majority that won't be seated come January 3rd. So essentially, you'll have a Republican majority of 101.99. So the question that's been lingering uh, throughout the, the halls of Harrisburg over the last couple of weeks has been, well, where is, what's your majority when you swear in a speaker on, on January 3rd? And it, it now has led to that paperwork insurrection that the Republicans referred to it as yesterday, which was basically the governor's claim, or excuse me, the Democrats claiming to have a majority of the seats, but not the majority, obviously, as being sworn in. It's an interesting perspective to be taken that uh, as one client pointed out to me in a message, uh, we always heard that dead people can't vote or sometimes do vote in Pennsylvania. But now there's literally referring to people that aren't going to be seated, but they're counting the numbers as the seats. Uh, and essentially, unfortunately, one person is the seat. So, you know, again, it's it's literally minute by minute, day by day in Pennsylvania. It will be, I expect, to be challenged in the courts. Pennsylvania does have a Democratic-controlled Supreme Court. so. You know, if, if party affiliation matters there, we know how that'll play out. So, you know, challenges, all, I look around the room to all of you, you know, we're all information sharers and gatherers with clients. And one of the greatest challenges we've had uh, in Pennsylvania on our team over the last, certainly over the last week plus, is just being able to have accurate, timely information when uh, this is unprecedented and certainly something that will lead to history books being written or rewritten in this capacity. So I don't want to belabor the point and talk too much as I've already done, but John certainly appreciate the opportunity to share that perspective from, from the great state of Pennsylvania. Hey, Jim, how are those three seats going to be filled? Are they appointed? Is there a special election? Well, that's, that, that is, uh, again, apologies for the oversight there. The special election is why they actually resigned yesterday. Once you announce a resignation that seat's vacant, the clock starts ticking for an, a special election date. The date has been set by Leader McClinton, Joanna McClinton, who's the Democrat, for February 7th. And that's kind of the undercurrent of the paperwork insurrection is because the current Speaker of the House, Brian Cutler, who's a Republican, is the one that typically would set the election. And uh, Leader McClinton was sworn in yesterday and gave, she supposedly has the authority, again, the Republicans are challenging this, she supposedly has the authority to set the dates and she quickly set the dates of February 7th, obviously accelerating getting uh, people in the seats in, in, the, in the General Assembly. So it's certainly interesting. The other little bit of caveat is our two-year session ended November 30th. Our new legislature gets sworn in January 3rd. So essentially, by way of our Constitution, we don't have a legislature now. We have those, how many days is that, 34 days of, of no one really having their, their hand in the Bible and their, their other hand in the air swearing in. So is there really a majority right now? It's all an elected majority, but not a seated majority for every House member and or Senate member. So it's, it's certainly unprecedented. Matt, great question. Thank you for that. Matt, what happened in Illinois? Well, it was, you know, like like across the country, it was a really interesting election night. I'm an eternal optimist and, and thought the Democrats' slaughter was not going to be as bad as predicted. I, I thought we were going to lose three seats in the, in the Illinois House, and I was about the most optimistic person, even amongst Democrats, and I was dead wrong. 
the Democrats ended up netting five uh, additional seats. So, you know, predictions ranged anywhere from from D's losing, you know, three to 10 seats. And and we ended up netting five new Democrats. So there'll be 78 Democrats in the Illinois House out of 118 members, the most uh, Democrats ever in the history of the Illinois General Assembly. So um, in the Senate, they ended up losing one Democratic seat in far southern Illinois, which was uh, kind of predicted. But especially in the suburbs around Chicago, the Democrats maintained their seats and added to their majorities. As we saw kind of across the country, crime was an issue that Republicans tried to use to to capitalize, especially in the suburbs, and it just didn't work here. No one's exactly sure why, but the, the issues of abortion and threats to democracy just resonated with suburban voters way more than than crime. It was one of those rare opportunities. We've all been involved in, on the campaign side as well. And, you know, typically campaigns do a poll. They see where voters are and then they use those issues to communicate to voters. And it, it almost appeared to be the reverse here, right? The, the Republicans decided crime was going to be an issue regardless of, of where it was on polls. Almost every poll I saw had it as, you know, the third or fourth highest ranking issue, but Republicans just doubled down on it. And they tried to make this election about crime and the voters just didn't buy it. So we we picked up congressional seats. Illinois lost one seat, so it went from 18 to 17, but we now have 14 of the 17 uh, congressional seats in Democratic hands. Um, We picked up those huge majorities in the House. The caucuses are getting younger, more progressive, more diverse. Um, which is, you know, following the trends we're seeing everywhere. And Matt, what about the governor? Yeah, the governor won um, in an overwhelming majority, not entirely, I don't know anybody who's surprised by that, including Republicans. The Republican primary featured a black mayor from a suburb of Chicago named Richard Irvin, who ran um, against a number of a number of candidates, but the biggest, his biggest challenge was Darren Bailey, um, a downstate uh, state senator. Kind of the thought was that the mainstream establishment, the the Chamber of Commerce Republicans, if you will, would get Richard Irvin over the finish line as kind of the more moderate and the candidate with the best chance of, of giving Governor Pritzker a real run for his money. The Democrats spent a lot of money attacking Richard Irvin in that primary, and Darren Bailey won the primary overwhelmingly. But Darren is a, a, a Trump Republican, right? Um, Trump came to campaign for him in the state, and that just doesn't play well anywhere outside of Southern Illinois. So the suburbs and and the city, the suburban Cook County, Darren Bailey just got crushed. So it wasn't a surprise. I think it's much more of a referendum on Trump than it is on Governor Pritzker. I don't think his huge victory was a sign that everybody in Illinois loves him. I think it was much more of a rejection of, you know, the Trump style uh, politics. That's great. Let me talk quick about Minnesota. Then Katie will go to New York. But Minnesota followed kind of the same trend that we saw in Illinois. We're just two years behind you, I guess. Um, And for the first time since 2013 and 14, we now have a Democratic trifecta. And the real surprise here was the state Senate. Governor Walls ran for re-election, and the polls showed him consistently a plus five, and he won handily. And so it was not, did not turn out to be 
the race that we all thought it was going to be. That was due in part to the governor taking a moderate stance on some things like crime. He opposed the ballot measure in the city of Minneapolis to defund the police. He was uh, very moderate on a number of other issues. He uh, and, and frankly, the, the Republicans really played up the crime angle, the inflation angle, and they tried to make the governor's approach to COVID a real problem. The interesting thing is, in Minnesota, the uh, COVID question that kept coming up and, and the, the governor's approach to COVID was an interesting one because our vaccination rates in Minnesota are above 75%. And in my mind, that's a poll. I mean, if folks are getting vaccinated, they're taking it seriously. Either they're required to or they're, or, uh, and they're not objecting due to the exemptions or anything like that. So uh, that didn't play. And the, in particular, the suburbs, it was, again, I think a, a referendum on Trump. The same thing here as it was in Illinois. Now, we saw in the Senate as well a number of candidates who looked and felt or incumbents like a Trump Republican, they lost. And uh, that uh, led to the, probably the biggest surprise in Minnesota, and that was the Senate flipping from Republican control to Democratic control. The Democrats needed five seats to take over the majority in Minnesota, and they won exactly five seats. So we now have a 34-33 majority here. It was tied till about three in the morning, and there was a seat up north on the Canadian border that came down to the wire. And once that one came through, that actually determined the uh, majority in the Senate for the Democrats. Interestingly enough, in some of the rural seats where Democratic senators won, both House seats went Republican. So we had a lot of ticket splitting here in Minnesota at, uh, for the state House and the state Senate, which was fascinating. I think what it came down to in large part was that the candidate quality mattered. Uh, you look across who won, of course, we know all these folks because we lobby them and go see them out at, in, in the interim, and this and that. And you saw the folks who worked really hard and sort of fit the district win. And those that kind of didn't, didn't win. And so it seemed to me that voters in Minnesota, at least, were really paying attention to who the candidates were. Um, the House uh, stayed Democratic. They uh, lost as many seats as they gained. So they're still in the majority, 70, 64. And then in the other uh, constitutional offices in Minnesota, too, again, we'll go back to that candidate uh, quality. We had uh, a, a very Trump-affiliated Secretary of State candidate on the Republican side. She lost big. We had what I would call, Matt referred to him as a Chamber of Commerce Republican on the Attorney General race, and the incumbent, Keith Ellison, former member of Congress here, only won by about an eighth, uh, eight-tenths of a point. And so it really came down to who was running for what office here in Minnesota. And uh, so we've got a trifecta uh, Democratic control heading into the next uh, legislative session. And uh, we'll have it at least for two years until the House is up again. But we'll have a four-year Democratic governor here and four years of a Democratic-controlled state Senate. And, uh, and then the House will be up in two years. So just a fascinating election uh, from any number of perspectives. So Katie, why don't you talk a little bit about New York and then Julia, we'll go to Virginia and talk about what's going to happen, what happened and then what's going to happen. Sure, happy to. Governor Hochul's just been elected. It's actually her first time being elected. She was appointed, as you may recall, after the rather spectacular downfall of our former governor, Andrew Cuomo. And so I think that, you know, she had been serving as lieutenant governor. She was quite popular and was doing a nice job in the first year in her, um, after she'd been elevated. But the race became surprisingly tight as the campaign went on. And I think that was a reflection of the trends that we were seeing with the 
overwhelming concern here in New York about public safety. I think the governor got sort of whipsawed by a lot of press that was being carried out, some in the mainstream media and others that was being funded by a lot of really powerful independent expenditure campaigns to really drill down this message that the state legislature was out of control, that they had created these bail reform and other laws that had really created this lawless environment. And that was very, very resonant, especially in the suburban counties around New York City. In the end, what happened was that the governor was reelected, but there was a poll about 10 days before the election that showed that the margin between her and Lee Zeldin, who was the Republican candidate for governor, was quite, quite narrow, surprisingly narrow. And I think what that had the effect of doing was really rallying her supporters, rallying some of the more progressive organizations and and advocates who had been sort of sitting out and not participating because Governor Hochul, as you may know, is a little bit more of a moderate. Um, Many people came out, campaigned actively, and the voter turnout in the end came um, forward and the governor was elected by a a margin that was comfortably wide that she could declare a substantial victory. But it was the impact of these advocacy campaigns, I think, were reflected in the wins in the legislature. So while both the state Senate and the state assembly maintained super majorities of Democrats, the candidates who were elected often were elected by narrow margins. And we did see that there were some seats flipping from longtime Democrats to Republicans, particularly in the suburban counties, for example, in Long Island. And what this, I think, will mean is that in the legislature, those seats that were lost, the Democratic seats that were lost, tended to be the more moderate Democrats. And so what we'll see now in the mix of the policymakers and the legislators is more progressive Democrats and more Republicans. So it'll be interesting to see how the debates start shaping up when they begin the next session in January and start to adopt some new laws to address the issues that are the big issues in New York right now. So obviously, crime is one. A package of bail reform bills that were passed a couple of years ago have been just top of mind. They're very, very unpopular with the public, with the police unions. They're they're clearly the scapegoat for a lot of people as to why we've seen this increase in crime throughout the state. Other issues that people are very concerned about are just cost of living. It's particularly reflected in debates about housing. The governor, we know, is going to focus um, on housing as an issue. Affordable housing in New York is extremely hard to find. Just the cost of homeownership has risen dramatically. And she seems to be committed to taking on this topic statewide. And the issues vary, you know, whether you're in an urban location, a suburban location, or a rural location. And her policymakers are really trying to come up with a comprehensive suite of proposals that will be acceptable. And that's going to be a tall order for her, right? Because this is a hot button topic in a lot of places, zoning reforms, financial incentives, tax policy, all of this really does tend to put a lot of advocates with different agendas into one space. But we're looking forward to seeing what she'll propose early in January and then seeing how the legislature will come down on it. Another topic that's really important in New York right now is climate action. The state's adopted really aggressive climate goals and real firm commitments to have significant greenhouse gas reductions and significant investments in in wind energy and other things. So those are promises that have been made, but obviously getting from here to that end result is always where the devil is in the detail. So 
we're looking forward again to seeing how now that she is a duly elected governor and somewhat empowered, how she um, begins to roll out those policy changes too. And then the final thing I think that's worth mentioning is that one thing that I think puts some wind in the state's sails is that the mayor, Eric Adams, and Governor Hochul do have a very constructive working relationship. We didn't see that at all in the last administration. Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo were just ridiculously hostile to each other. It was really destructive. And um, although it was somewhat entertaining theater, it wasn't productive at all for the state. And so we've seen the governor and the mayor work together on a number of items. I think that the crime issue is one place where they do seem to be a bit at odds with the governor trying to work perhaps more collegially with the progressives who are more interested in criminal justice reform. um, And the mayor is much more interested in a more aggressive public safety agenda. But in terms of economic development and climate action, they seem to be pretty well aligned. So that I think is is pretty helpful, both politically and policy-wise for the state of New York. You've got Democratic governor and Democratic House, Democratic Senate. So you've got a trifecta in New York as well, right? Yes. And and Governor Huckle, the first female governor of New York, obviously mm-hmm. when she took over, but then also now first duly elected Correct. Uh, female governor of New York, right. which is also kind of cool. Right. So that's but our right. Democrats, like all Democrats, I think across the country, you know, they're um, not always able to get along very well with each other. Right. So they no, may have I, the same the same label, but they aren't necessarily a loyal bunch that all rose in the same direction. So, well, some some would say that when you've got uh, Democrats or Republicans controlling everything, the fight is always fiercer when it's inside the family than it's with the other side. <laughs> I, so, I, you know, I'm it's entirely possible. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's going to be a really interesting, uh, I, I think, uh, theme throughout our, in our state too, is that, you know, it's the first, obviously Illinois has been there for a while, but this is the first time we've had the trifecta and the democratic control. And, right. I mean, we're talking about big things early. And as you said, the devil's in the details and there's a process. And so it'll right. be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. Julia, right. You know, may I just add one more thing? I'd really oh, be yeah, remiss yeah. if I didn't mention how excited we are that both uh, Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries will be leading Congress, um, both of whom are not only from New York, but from Brooklyn. So um, that is one thing. It's a real point of pride for the state and for many of our officials. And so, you know, we're hopeful that that will help kind of bring people together and be a unifying thing. It's not enough to have to say that uh, Brooklyn is challenging Scranton as the political epicenter of the country. (laughs) Brooklyn is the epicenter of the universe. (laughs) We'll get back to you on that one. Hey, Katie, I've got a quick question for you before we turn to Julia. Has there been any finger pointing or conversations about the New York congressional map as people look at, you know, that those seats may have changed the balance of power in, in D.C.? There has. There's been a lot of discussion about whether Jay Jacobs, who's the head of the state Democratic Party, should be replaced. He's been in that position for a very long time. He does have some loyal supporters, including, as far as we can tell, the governor and the mayor. But he's not well liked among some of the progressives and some of the younger Democrats. So, so far, he seems to be holding on to his position. The redistricting process in New York was a mess. It was you know, the legislature proposed new lines. They were thrown out in court because they were so biased toward the Democrats. It led to, you know, a whole set of primaries or actually multiple primaries because the congressional and the Senate lines were 
determined one way in court. The assembly lines then were okayed, but then the second lawsuit came along and then they were thrown out again. So new lines for the assembly have just been recommended as of last week. There's been an awful lot of controversies due to some really bad political judgment there. So as of now, nothing has changed, but it's a good question, Matt. It may well change. So before before we move to Virginia, I guess all I have to say is that all the congressional leadership now is from New York because apparently it's not enough to have the Yankees. So <laughs> we, we knocked the Twins out of the playoffs, you know, for like the last decade. In any event, I'm not bitter. It's fine. Everything's fine. So, um, <laughs> Julia, um, if you would talk to us about what happened in the governor's race and then what how you know that you got elections next year for your legislature. And but you've got a. I think pass a budget in between there too, right? Or at least do some work at the legislature. Maybe I'm wrong, but enlighten us on uh, on that piece if you would. Yeah, so Virginia is unlike all of you guys. We had our red wave last year. Um, we had had the trifecta. Uh, Democrats controlled the three statewide offices, the House and the Senate. And it was um, much like the leadership coming out of New York, a unifying force for Republicans in Virginia. And they ousted, so Glenn Youngkin won, an absolute political outsider. He'd never run for anything before. Ousted Terry McAuliffe, um, who for, he had been governor. He was coming back to try another stint. Virginia has a little quirk in the code that does not allow a governor to succeed him or herself. So Governor Northam was in between Terry McAuliffe. A good, uh, a good fundraiser for the Democratic Party nationally, um, a best friend of the Clintons, was coming back for a second round and was beaten by Glenn Youngkin. And then we have Winston Sears and Jason Meares, two Republicans who won lieutenant governor in the AG's race. And then the Republicans flipped the House. So we, our red wave came and uh, many are hoping went. And that's it, because this election cycle, we only had congressional races. The Republicans flipped one seat down in Hampton Roads. And I don't even know that you can really call it a flip because based upon the new lines, it was a plus Republican district. Anyway, all of the other districts kind of went as expected. Um, There was some talk, Abigail Spamberger, she's the seventh congressional district. Her district moved away from her. She lives in a different one now. It was moved to Northern Virginia. And there was some who would kind of hope that maybe she could be taken out since she was running in an area where she does not live. Um, and had no kind of connection to it. But I think the combo of it being a Northern Virginia Democratic-leaning Democratic seat and the fact that her opponent, Vega, was a Trump, Trump-style Trump candidate certainly put the kibosh on um, her Vega's hopes and dreams of ousting Abigail. We will have a special election coming up. Um, sadly, uh, earlier, or last month, we lost Congressman Don McEachin, he had been a, a longtime um, elected official from Central Virginia, and he lost his fight with uh, colon cancer. So we will have a special election there. But that district is a strong Democratic one, so it will not change the political makeup for Virginia's delegation. The next year, though, is going to be yet another year. Virginia likes to wait, sit back, see what you all have done, what worked, what didn't. And then we have our election. So our governor is an off-off year. Typically, our governor, um, the The party that won the White House loses the governorship the next year in Virginia, as happened this last go round. And we because of our proximity to D.C., a lot of those issues. So if there is a government shutdown, um, like when Ken Cuccinelli ran for governor um, and it was a Republican governorship, they don't win in Virginia. So a lot of what this um, new Congress does and what President Biden does will have a very strong impact on Virginia, um, in particular in northern Virginia. All 140 seats, so 100 House, 40 Senate are up, um, and it'll be the first run in the new districts. 
These new districts were drawn in a completely new way for the Commonwealth of Virginia. No longer can the uh, House and Senate get together and draw their own. We had a commission, legislation passed, created a commission. The commissioners couldn't agree on uh, lines. So then the courts drew our new districts. We have a lot of legislators who've been put in incumbents who've been put in districts with their friends. So there's going to be that fighting and then um, a lot of new open seats. Um, and just to add more confusion for Virginia voters, the district numbers changed. So many of us lived, we'll say in the seventh, we are now in the 10th. And a lot of people don't really know or understand what that means. Good news for Virginia though, our session, again, we like to be the first out of the gate. We always start the second Wednesday in January and we will go for 46 straight days. So the two year Pennsylvania session does not happen here. They, they alternate years, 46 is our short non-budget year. So no, the governor won't get his budget. Uh, governor Youngkin will not be able to introduce his own full budget until next year. And then that'll be a 60 day straight session. So we like to just drink from a fire hose and then go back, theoretically back to our districts to do uh, regular work. But next year is gonna be insane. And so this session is going to um, not get a lot. We'll have a lot of brochure bills, a lot of things people are gonna run on and then they'll die because the Republicans control the house. Democrats control the Senate, and they're really more interested in getting back to their districts, getting to know their new people, and to fundraise. We cannot fundraise when the legislature is in regular session, so um, they won't be able to. They will fundraise right up until we start on the 11th of January, pause, and then hopefully 46 days later, they'll be able to start it up again, and it'll be it'll be really intense. It'll be a lot of national money. Our governor is, in some circles, being talked about as a possible uh, candidate for president. Though a poll released today, Virginians would prefer him to stay and serve out his full four years in his current job. But there's a lot of talk there. So um, the assumption is that, you know, Democratic circles outside of Virginia will want to lean in and help candidates to show that, you know, he he isn't going to be able to deliver another big win. But we'll we'll see how it goes. We certainly took notes on what messaging worked and didn't work. Um, we have a lot of legislators who had kind of started on the um, economy, COVID, and Governor Youngkin, that was his path until he learned putting parents in charge of their children's education and having an active role old hire. And then he quickly moved to that. So we have legislators who are trying to test and see, does that message still work or do we need to shift and go elsewhere? So thank you all for spending a lot of money field testing messaging for Virginia elected officials. We appreciate it. Our clients will, too, because hopefully I won't have to ask for quite as much money for PAC donations. <laughs> we're, ha we're happy to help you. Sh we'll, we'll, we'll ship our polls over to you guys. Happy to help. When it comes to legislation, other stuff, we wait to see how it how it worked out elsewhere. And then uh, we pick sort of the, the best, easiest and, and try them here. We don't like to, you know, whether it's carbon emissions or something else, we, we try not to be the first uh, out of the gate on that. Hey, John, one thing I kind of just wanted to bring up, and, and Julia mentioned it as she was talking about how um, at the state level, folks are kind of looking to D.C. and seeing how that is going to impact what they do. And, you know, we've got states represented here, but also states just across the country where they have unified government for the first time in a long time. Michigan's another great example um, where all three branches are in the same party. And, you know, we contrast that with D.C., where we're going to have slim majorities in both chambers, divided government, you know, not to rag on our, our friends who, who uh, are in the Bellway, but it's going to be yet another congressional session where not a whole lot of major things get done. Advocates are going to be looking to the states. So for our listeners who are 
you know, usually primarily focused on D.C., you know, it's a good reminder that the states do look to each other. And Minnesota looks to see what Illinois does. And Illinois looks to see what New York does. So for folks who may be usually focused on D.C. saying, ah, you know, we don't need to focus on the states. This is where a lot of, you know, depending on your viewpoint, a lot of bad ideas get seeded or a lot of good ideas get started. So, you know, just drawing your attention to what's happening in these states, especially where you've got Democrats in control of all three chambers or Republicans uh, in, in charge, I think it's a good indication of what's to come down the pike. That's a great point, Matt. And, you know, frankly, it's a great segue into our next area of topics. The elections are done. We've covered that. Folks have won. They've lost. There's new majorities. So then now they got to govern and they got to do stuff. And uh, so I'm interested to know in your states, uh, what are, you know, two or three of the big issues that either haven't got done or aren't going to get done that should get done as a result of the elections? And Jim, I, I know that. We may not know what the majority is until February 7th or whenever the special election is. But, you know, assuming we get there at some point, what are folks talking about? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, John. Uh, our, our Senate, which has been um, Republican controlled for a very, very long time, um, is 28-22 Republican. So, you know, it will it will stay divided government in Pennsylvania. And the House is, as I've, as I've shared and we've discussed, 102-101 Democrat means it's 50-50 and, uh, you know, five, 10, eight colleagues down to two colleagues in the House can determine what's going to move or not. Um, There's going to be a lot of subgroups that are going to band together um, to consolidate their votes to affect what what calendars are are being considered. Um, You know, obviously, number of states throughout the country, Pennsylvania is no different on adult use. We're probably going to discuss it whether or not it actually gets done is is uncertain time is is certainly you're talking about adult use cannabis right yes correct apologies on that one yep um so we'll see if it has enough to get done obviously all the money that came down from federal government took away the argument about the uh, the benefits the economical benefits that it would provide pennsylvania however you know economists saying that dark times are ahead i, I think there's an opportunity to to discuss that, you know, Josh Shapiro, I, I think he's going to be a moderate governor. Um, he campaigned on that a little bit. Um, everybody understands that this will not be his highest office that he pursues. He'll either have a U.S. Senate run or or vice president or, or possibly even president. He's a younger governor, um, very aggressive and very well suited to be successful in Pennsylvania. So I think he's going to negotiate and uh, and do some things that are um, appropriate for Republicans in the state. And I think he's going to try to move some things forward that he's campaigned on. Um, but it's it's going to be uh, the, the first six months. It'll be, you know, seating new secretaries and uh, dealing with all the, the challenges of, of new legislative leaders and figuring out who gets what offices. So the second half of the year, I think, will be uh, the time when some real policy initiatives are, are vetted and and. Uh, deliberated. Katie, we talk have a about lot of work to do too on that adult use issue. We have a ton of work left to do. We started it under previous administrations, and when Republicans took over, they kind of put a weird pin in it. So we we kind of have it, um, but we have a, a lot of work there to do because I do think there are a lot of Virginians who are like, just pick a lane, give me the rules, and let's get going, and not have this weird jumble. Both the ones who see this as a business proposition, um, but also just those who want to be able to enjoy adult use without fear of getting in trouble. We have a, a commission 
that's trying to figure out the new rules of the road. At the same time, the crime commission is talking about new ways to tell if you're under the influence. So I think Virginians feel really stuck because the those the proponents of adult use and the the businesses surrounding it um, only got about 50 percent there before we had some pretty decent political change in Virginia. But I, one thing I wanted to mention for us is going to be mental health. We've had very sadly two um, awful shootings in the the last couple of weeks. One at a Walmart down in Hampton Roads, and then obviously the UVA school shooting. And so while guns, gun control access is always a conversation, definitely nationally, but Virginia is no different. Mental health treatment is is really rising in the ranks. Virginia has done some, but certainly most feel that not enough has been done to help. And so we will probably see a lot of the shift in focus. We have a ton of money, huge surplus. Uh, Virginia did pretty well, even considering the um, economy and the pandemic, but a lot of that money is going to need to go towards mental health um, supports and treatments for school-aged children on up through adults, because it's just, you hear about it on the news, but when it does, when it happens in your community, it's jarring to say the least, but it really has gotten a lot of even moderate Republicans who um, maybe were afraid of talking about it because of primaries, talking about needing to get something done. Yeah, and uh, we're going to have a similar issue. You know, we we also had a um... Unfortunately, I feel like it's you know all, all too common. We had a uh, horrible mass shooting this summer at a Fourth of July parade and at Highland Park, which is a, a very affluent uh, neighborhood. More, definitely um, a place that most people would have considered safe, quote unquote. So, in, you know, it, it was shocking. I think the state representative from that area has already introduced an assault weapon ban. So we'll see what that looks like, but it's bringing up the, the, the usual arguments that we that we see when it comes to uh, to guns. Illinois is a pretty progressive progressive state, as we talked about earlier with our elections. So we'll 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 see what happens. But it's a vote that a lot of Democrats are eager to take to show their constituents that you know these AR-15s and these uh, high capacity. Magazines are just not going to be allowed in Illinois. So obviously it will be um, a legislative battle followed by a legal battle. You know, everyone's anticipating that this will be challenging the courts, but assault weapons, assault weapon ban will be one of the hot topics early in the session. Um, And then reproductive rights will continue to um, be at the top of people's minds. Illinois is a pretty um, safe haven in the Midwest. Well, that's putting a huge stress on access to reproductive rights for the women of, in Illinois, because now, um, you know, what, where you used to be able to, especially in Southern Illinois, you used to be able to go to um, a clinic on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River, kind of in suburban St. Louis, and, and be able to get an appointment relatively quickly. They've just been inundated with people from Missouri, people from Texas, d- driving to Illinois because it's the closest access point for, for reproductive health. So trying to figure out what the appropriate amount of funding that Illinois should spend to essentially help non-Illinoisans, right? It, it does help the women in, um, in Illinois who are, their appointments are being delayed because there's so many people flooding the system. But that's going to be an interesting debate um, of how Illinois serves uh, women seeking reproductive health who are outside of our borders. 
In New York, I would echo almost all of those um, as, and also just add a couple of things. One is I think we're likely to see some pretty aggressive data privacy proposals in the state. New York would like to probably surpass even California's standards for that, which has been very thorny. It hasn't gotten through the legislature in the past, but we've spent quite a bit of time pushing back against rather unworkable proposals that have been made. And then the other is more of sort of a bucket of proposals that have to do with you might broadly call them consumer protections, but there's a, a just cause eviction proposal that has been floating around in the state legislature. Just now there is has been introduced in the city council a just cause employment protection so that you it would basically end at will employment, which is our legislative framework here in New York right now. Those kinds of proposals, I think, are bubbling up again in the state. And so we'll be looking out for those as well. Essentially, in Minnesota, we've got, um, as I mentioned, we've got the Democratic trifecta, and there's a lot of uh, pent-up issues amongst the Democrats that they want to wrestle to the ground. We've had divided government since 2016, and so, you know, we've sort of, we've gotten our stuff done, we've passed our budgets, it's been hard-fought negotiations, and it really has been status quo uh, in many respects over the last several years in Minnesota, only because we've had dem- uh, divided government. And so there hasn't been a major policy leap either toward the Democratic you know, side or the Republican side. And now that the trifecta is in power, uh, there's talk, uh, there's just a legislative panel yesterday, and they covered paid medical family leave, implementing a 100% renewable energy standard by a certain date, adult recreational use cannabis, sports betting, red flag laws as it relates to gun control. And then um, much like uh, Virginia, we have a massive budget surplus. It came out yesterday that Minnesota is going to have a $17.6 billion budget surplus. Uh, For context, our whole state budget is about $52, $53 billion. I mean, it it is massive. Uh, that's there in part because at the end of the last legislative session, when Republicans controlled the Senate, Democrats controlled the House, and we had a Democratic governor, there was a deal struck uh, to spend at that time our $9 billion budget surplus, uh, tax cuts, some new spending and things of the like. They came to an agreement a week before session, couldn't pull it off, decided to go to the elections to see where things landed. And of course, um, so none of the money was spent. So now we we it's essentially doubled since last session. So a bunch of that money is one time, so there'll be a big fight or struggle to understand, you know, how are we going to spend that money in a way that doesn't incur liabilities into the future, such that we are end up with a budget deficit in four, six, eight years. Uh, so that'll be a big issue. Um, but we, it's a budget year next year for Minnesota, and we set our uh, two-year budget, and so the uh, legislature has to have the budget done by June 30, or else we'll have a budget shut- shutdown. Or excuse me, a government shutdown. I don't think that's going to happen. But what that means is you'll have a whole bunch of spending bills that have to pass in order to avoid a government shutdown. And within those spending bills, you'll find any number of items uh, that are policy items or otherwise along the lines of perhaps some of the things that I mentioned. And so it, uh, it it's the year where there are vehicles that have to pass and any number of interesting things get put in them. And so it'll be a, a, a fascinating legislative session for us. The legislature uh, starts Jan, uh, January 3rd. It will finish on May 16th. Then we'll have a legislative interim uh, until the following year, probably about mid or late January when we start again uh, in our two-year cycle. So um, it's going to be uh, 
I, I will say the last thing I would say is that the, the Speaker of the House and the panel yesterday intimated that some of these issues that everybody wants to pursue might be year two issues. So she's starting to set expectations that, uh, geez, we have to pass a budget. We have five months to do it. And we have this massive surplus and we have all these things people want to do. Don't forget that we have two years to do all these things. So uh, for those who may be disappointed in May, there's always the following year to uh, start getting things done. And at that time, it'll be a budget only session and we won't, or excuse me, a policy only session. And maybe we tweak the budget a touch in that regard. Um, I laugh at so year two. We've got day one and the governor's about to announce his day two agenda a year in. We count by days, very, very long ones. <laughs> that is That's fascinating. So at this point, um, folks, any last comments on your state? I think we can wrap. Uh, it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed uh, getting together with you all. And uh, it's been a great discussion. I've learned a ton about what's going on in other states. Some of it's similar and some of it not. But uh, absent any last comments, I would encourage everybody to come up to Minnesota. And if you get a 28 degree day that's sunny with some snow on the ground, I'm telling you, we got cross country skiing, we got pond hockey tournaments, we go ice fishing, a beautiful walkout in the park, snowshoeing. There's a ton of stuff to do. Don't be afraid of Minnesota in winter, but do avoid the minus 20 days. Those aren't, can't hey, do much then. You just watch. If you want to thaw out, come on down to Virginia. Yeah, John, did you just pick up the tourism bureau or something as a client? <laughs> All the shows are open in Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. So thanks again, everybody. Again, we have uh, Matt Glavin from Illinois, Jim Davis from Pennsylvania, Katie Schwab from New York, Julia Hammond from Virginia, and I'm John Reich in Minnesota. We are the uh, Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies State Lobbying Team. There's any number of colleagues that we also have in all these states that weren't here today who can also help with any issues folks may have. And I presume that uh, next week they'll get back to the federal discussions and they can talk about the Georgia election and how that matters up there and everything like that. And uh, we'll look forward to that. Thank you all for coming. Really appreciate it. And until the next time that the state team hijacks the Inside the Beltway podcast, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.